sometimes you know we're so focusing on the project plan that we forget about okay let's try to measure our success factors and some of the very critical KPIs to the project. I was always a big fan of uh, TTV, time to value. If you're thinking about time to value as the most critical piece, you can break down your success into small pieces of deliverables and each one of those deliverables will give you the value as soon as possible. So I like to be always very aggressive with TTV when we're thinking about system and processes and I usually would even try to put it into the range of four weeks to see initial value. It really, yeah, yeah, I, I see your kind of uh, face. Uh, absolutely, four to eight weeks, I would definitely try. Hello, and welcome to Tech for Finance, where we help finance professionals leverage technology to level up their lives. I'm your host, Adam Shilton, and today we're joined by Dr. Liren Edelist. With a PhD in business administration and an MBA in business management, Liren is a strategic executive leader known for his extensive experience and proven track record of fostering business growth from startups all the way to Fortune 100 giants. Liren brings over 20 years of experience in EPM as a founder of a consulting firm and the former global head of customer success and North America president of Jedox. Outside of the boardroom, Liren is an accomplished author with publications that delve into the intricate world of software costing and business ethics, and he's also a teaching professor. In his spare time, Liren likes to spend time with his three kids and his wife, and they go hiking, cycling, skiing, um, and go to amusement parks, so I hear. So, uh, but before we start, if you like what you hear today, don't forget to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and on YouTube, but it's amazing to have you with us today, Liren, I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you. So happy to be here and uh, love your podcast. So thanks ever so much. No, it is great and, and excited to have the conversation. So um, I know we're we've got a bit of a hard stop, um, so we can go straight into it. So over to you. Do you want to start giving a bit of background? You know, um, focus of this session is EPM, CPM. So do you want to take us through your approach? Give us a bit of introduction to the way that we work, and then we can go from there. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, um, I, I can start, you know, my approach to EPM CPM started about 20 years ago, as you mentioned in your intro. And we used to call that office of the CFO at that time or a budgeting solution, right? And over time, it was evolving to many different areas and ideas. And I think even nowadays, no one knows how to really call that. Is it like FPNA, XPNA, EPM, CPM, right? Giving the name. Um, so I, I would like to take a little bit of a different angle and speak with you about the conversation I had with a friend of mine. Um, mm -hmm. He's um, a startup founder, very successful one. And I spoke with him a little bit about this market and his reaction was, hey, you know, for me as a founder and a CEO of a growing company, the FP&A guy and the guys who gave me the data were the most important people to me. Mm. Um, so I, I'm, I'm giving that example maybe just to speak a little bit about my approach or the way I see EPM and CPM. I think, you know, whatever we're doing, whether, you know, those are FP&A uh, professionals that are producing the data, if those are consultants that are helping them with or without technology, mm. I think we have to make sure that what we're doing with the EPM, EPM would be the most valuable insights we can bring to uh, the CEO or to the management teams, right? So I, I think we need to start with that. Mm -hmm. um, now, then, you know, we can take EPM and CPM and make it kind of 
parallel to the stage where the business is, right? So if it's a business that is just starting and growing, then by nature, maybe the basic stuff to give them is just the financial information mm. and some other one. But if we're do, talking about growing companies, about more complex organization, it is much beyond the financial data or the budget planning and forecasting, right? It's mm. literally how business processes are working in the business, how they can be optimized, what value creation the company is doing, and how can it create this value in a more productive way that can get more money and growth to the organization, right? So I think that's kind of the overall way to, to think about EPM and CPM. And then we can think a little bit about the technologies and we have to make sure that the technologies are aligning with the goal of the EPM and not just about is it Excel or web-based platform, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I'd, I totally agree. Um, and I mean, I suppose coming back to, to something else that we obviously mentioned in the intro, which was your experience as the um, head of customer success when you were at, at Jellox, right? So um, now with you obviously running your own consulting firm, um, how what, what does success look like to you? So, so if you're speaking with a company, you know, and if um, obviously they approach you with a challenge, right, to say, look, we're, we're struggling here, we need insight here, or we need to, to tweak process here. What, what are you working towards when we're thinking about outcomes? Right. So um, the way I think about customer success in our space of, let's call it business planning and analysis, hmm. is... With, with all of the technology and the challenges, you know, some economy situation that is not overly comfortable and a lot of new technology coming in, I like to think about customer success through the eyes of business transformation. Hmm. Um, I like to think about that, what is the potential value that the organization needs and how this potential value can be optimized through the eyes or the hands or the technology that is coming with that, you know, enterprise performance management solutions. Um, one of the key differentiations here is that, um, you know, if you go, let's say, and implement a, a project management solution, right, the cloud project management solution, what you get there is a sort of a methodology that is, in many cases, very well used and known. Mm -hmm. And you get the tool that help you to manage that well, met, you know, known methodology. I think the business planning and analysis is very different in the sense that it should be taking the business from point A to B and not each and every business are in the same way. So what I'm trying to say here, it's not a process that is well defined in advance. It's very customized to the needs of the organization that is using the EPM. So if there is an organization that is really struggling with growth, right, you need to think how the EPM technology will help to get the right insights and understand how you can do growth better and, you know, do some analysis on your customer base, on, on success, on failure and that kind of stuff. But if your organization is more in the cost-saving area, then there are different uh, um, activities to do, you know, to focus on cost saving. And then again, you need to understand the business processes to implement that. And that's, you know, the way I'm seeing, you know, the success with a, a EPM solution different than others, 
but also I'm thinking about that from the business value that might be different than just taking a technology and say, okay, now I'm implementing like a production system for whatever, like a CRM or VPM, uh, I'm sorry, or, or, or uh, um, project management solution in that sense. So for, forgive my ignorance here. Um, so my background in technology is, is ERP, CRM, you know, those sorts of, I guess, mid-market, um, I guess, more operationally focused systems. So when we talk about EPM here, um, are we talking about a combination of applications, i.e. an ecosystem? Can, can we class enterprise performance management as an ecosystem of applications or in the world that you come from, is it? Is the EPM a solution in its own right? So, you know, because I, I'm having like two, in a way, two diverse backgrounds, I was serving as a consultant, uh, mm. completely like technology agnostic, and I was yeah. in the side of the software vendor. So I think most software vendors would like to think about EPM as a sole solution, as a technology, mm -hmm. right? that can give you everything you need in order to manage your financial data, planning, forecasting, and reporting. Um, however, I, you know, I think that EPM is a concept more than a tool because um, you can say that the BI system is, is an EPM as well, right? Mm -hmm. But then it will not definitely be comprehensive. So I think we need to, as a customer or as a consultant, I think we need to, to think about EPM as a concept that includes different business activities and create a certain business value to the organization, mm. right? And potentially EPM tools will be uh, the way to implement it. Some vendors will say you need only one EPM tool to do it all. And mm. some will say, well, maybe you do planning in one tool and reporting in the other, right? You can always combine a planning tool with a BI system as an example, mm. right? Um, but I think the, the, the stage is really to identify what is the scope of EPM that the organization really needs, mm -hmm. what are the stages, like what is the roadmap to a, a full EPM transformation or a full business transformation around that. And then, you know, you should say, okay, do I need one tool or more? Okay. Okay, that's, that's fine. And going back to what you said there, you know, we, do, we need to define what, what the end goal is at the end of the day. Yeah, um, especially with the amount of tools that are now available on the market, right? It's uh, it's giving everybody headaches, but maybe a conversation for for a different day, right? So, so coming back to the sorry, we've gone off on a bit of a tangent. Coming back to the to the customer success piece. So, obviously, you're quite qualified when it comes to business um, and all of those sorts of things. So, you you probably are a lot more familiar with the concept of you know um, KPIs, OKRs, you know, all, all of that sort of stuff. So from the perspective of um, a customer that's going through transformation, whether it's a combined platform, multiple solutions or whatever, in terms of success, what KPIs do they need to, to focus on? You know, so, so um, maybe it's also valid to outline maybe some bad KPIs as well, because sometimes it's just as good to be able to filter out the poor as well as focus on the good, right? So I don't know whether you could talk around that a little bit um, and whether there's maybe one that people need to focus on above others. That'd be, it'd be great to get your perspective there. Right. So, you know, um, great question. And thank you for asking, because I think the first piece to remember is that, you know, regardless if you're implementing an ERP 
or an EPM solution, we need to make sure that we put those KPIs and the measurement system in place, right? It mm. goes without saying, but sometimes, you know, we're so focusing on the project plan that we forget about, okay, let's try to measure our success factors and, and some, some of the very critical KPIs to the project. Um, however, in, in that space of EPM, um, I was always a big fan of uh, TTV, time to value. Mm. Um, which for some reason, many in many cases, people forget about it. Um, now, the reason I like the time to value is because you can really think about the time. If, if you're thinking about time to value as the most critical piece, you can break down your success into small pieces of deliverables, and each one of those deliverables will give you the value as soon as possible. Now, it goes into several other areas, you know, like with other system, we always want um, easy adaption to the system, right? Mm -hmm. And you're starting to get uh, the value from a system with adaption. So if the time to value for a system is whatever, is taking too many weeks, it means that the adaption is also difficult, right? So I like to be always very aggressive with TTV when we're thinking about system and processes and i usually would even try to put it into the range of four weeks to see initial value from a system between four and eight weeks it really yeah yeah i i see your kind of uh, face uh, absolutely four to eight weeks i would definitely try now see here here is the challenge here um may, maybe with the 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 key differentiation between um, an operational system or a transactional system like ERP, you cannot get value from ERP within a week, right? It takes a couple of months until you just run through the implementation. Hmm. And the EPM space have to provide tools for the end user to be agile and flexible. And, you know, many of the EPM vendors, they're saying that they are enhancing, some of them are saying they are replacing Excel, right? So, if you're an FPNA expert, you you will not lose your Excel flexibility into something that is much more complicated than that that you cannot maintain, right? Mm. So if that's the mindset, then why would the TTV will be more than a couple of weeks, right? If it takes a couple of months, as it means that you're building a sort of a big monster that will be very difficult to maintain and use. So I like to think about TTV as something, you know, what are the short-term outcomes? that can be delivered to the customer so he will be able to start engaging with the system. He will be able to start produce value. Um, and if you cannot get TTV in, let's say, the two months time frame, I would be trying to rethink about either the technology or the project plan. That's, that, I think that's really useful. So, and yeah, this applies to sort of any, I mean, maybe not even just tech decisions, but resourcing decisions, you know, and anything that has a potential cost associated with it. And I've, I've got another another question for you related to one of your your, your publications in a second, but we'll, we'll get onto that. But I think just asking that question, do we believe we will see fast value from this is a good filter. So, so, so thanks. Thanks for sharing that. Yeah, thanks for sharing that. I think um, coming back to what we mentioned about outcomes, KPIs, that sort of stuff as well. And I did, as, as, as you know, I've, I have quite a lot of conversations with companies that are going through some sort of tech, tech adoption, as you say, whether it's moving away from Excel or, you know, upgrading finance systems mm -hmm. or whatever it happens to be. 
And what I see time and time again, and, and you probably see this as well, is companies kind of only see the the four walls around them. They get used to their process. Um, and when they migrate or try and sort of take that next step into the future in terms of the next, next iteration of transformation, the focus is we just need to get to the next level of automation or we need a platform that's going to enable the, the next level of growth. But it's still based on a capability and can it can our processes migrate into a new system but i think often it's the wrong question to ask so i'll give you some examples right so um we need a system that's gonna help us um procure better okay fine any system will help you create purchase orders can can we you know can we get to that next level of detail um, what, why, why do you need a system that's going to help you procure better? Oh, well, cause we're, you know, we're, we're overspending at the moment. Okay. Right. What are you overspending on? Right. Well, we've, we've got 50 K in excess inventory. That's just been sat on the shelves for, for however long. And that's, that's where you've got it. Right. You know, so, so we're no longer just migrating systems, moving on to the next platform. We're improving cash flow by removing that excess industry that's you know, excess inventory that's you know basically creating a 50k hole in our you know in, a, in our, our potential cash flow right um so i think if using that example we were to then layer on your question which is do we believe that we will see value from a new system in four to eight weeks or whatever the metric is you can then benchmark by saying how much how do we believe that the new solution is going to enable us to free up that 50k of excess inventory within four to eight weeks? And then it's a lot more tangible than just, you know, do we think that the cost of investment is going to, you know, provide a return to us? So I think I think that's great advice, Lou, and I really appreciate you sharing that. Right. And, and you know, you mentioned that example with the procurement. Um, it, it's also raised a very nice example from our field. You know, we see, we hear... A lot of vendors saying uh, we will resolve your Excel hell, or we will, uh, you know, that kind of spreadsheet chaos, and and it's always like a question. I I don't think like you know if I'm putting myself in the shoes of an FBNA manager or a CFO, I don't think that I have personal problem with Excel. I have problem with the way that people are analyzing data, with the data processes. Um, the data accuracy, the planning uh, workflows and so on, right? So uh, I think that sometimes, you know, we also need to think a little bit in that mindset, hey, we are not trying with the EPM to solve a technology problem. Mm. We're trying to bring vis- business value to the picture, right? And and I think that's the key mindset. Um, it could be that some of the challenges is because Excel is not the right technology. It could be. But in many cases, those are, you know, data process and planning methods that are lacking, right? So mm-hmm. we always need to think about, okay, what are the real business challenges? And the business challenges are not with the technologies, usually with the way we are utilizing technology or data within the organization. Mm. And I think, I'm just thinking about a conversation I had a few days ago as well, is a lot of the time, people think that technology might be, you know, this this the silver bullet that's going to um, solve, solve problems, right? Um, and you'd hope it to be, right? Especially when you start getting into some of these really like heavy hitting solutions, right? The, the... Let's use ChatGPT; it will solve everything, right? We don't need finance anymore. <laughs> it will solve everything. Yeah, that's that's it. So, so obviously, we 
I mean, using the AI example, I was on a podcast with uh, Dan Lawrence and his guys at Bots for That called Beanies in a Pod. It's a great episode. I'll, I'll link to it in the in the show notes. So we'll find what they're doing at the moment. But one of the lines that came out of that conversation is that, you know, um, we hold AI to higher standards than we hold ourselves, right? You know, we expect it to be better than us, even though, you know, that's it's pretty high standards, right? And I think it doesn't help that when you're investing in new solutions, especially if you're spending a lot of money, you do hold them in very high regard right so yes we are investing in this system um, we have done a, a very rigorous due diligence process you know we know that we're likely to see fast times value but then the problem and may, maybe you can come on in this as well is sometimes on that user adoption piece because um consultants or whoever's implementing the system will have a great knowledge of the system they might have great knowledge of your industry and be able to provide instructions on how to use it but it's up to the organization to map the process to the way that the system works. And, and I think if there's another takeaway that, that people can, can sort of have a think about here is if you are undergoing any translation, there's a big argument to say that there's there's going to be documentation that's need to, that will need to be produced alongside any implementation that helps your team understand how your process then fits in with the system because you can't just give somebody access to a system and hope that you know, they, they know how it's going to work in relation to the way that they work as a, as a business. But it's one of the biggest gaps that you tend to see during tech implementations is that there isn't somebody that's nominated to do the documentary and, and do that translation piece. So so just something that's come to mind as we've been talking there. Right. And, and you know, I think documentation is super critical, especially over time when you want to make also changes to the system and you want to yeah. make sure that you get the full picture on how it works. Um, it's interesting that I do believe that uh, some systems that are being developed today um, tend to be kind of a self-service in the way that you're not really expecting someone to go through a user guide, but yeah. Yeah. through a more interactive way that explaining that. Um, however, I, I definitely think that one of the challenges is sometimes to explain that, yeah, it could be that we find employees, very good employees in an organization that served the organization for many years, but then you put an EPM system that requires them to think a little bit differently, right? Mm. And in those cases, it's not always just the documentation to explain them how they should be thinking differently, uh, but also why and what's in it for them, right? Mm. Um, I, I, I've seen many times when, you know, we... You know, there were like, you know, a group of people doing some reporting to the organization and spend a lot of time for that. And when we came with a better technology to say, hey, guys, you know, instead of spending whatever three days at the month and to, to close and to create those reports, you can do it in a couple of hours. Mm. You know, the immediate reaction was, oh, man, that, that's, you know, could be our job secure. No, we know how to do it and our heads is work better than the machine. But yeah. then we say, hey, guys, isn't it a little bit too boring for you to do that? And if you do that, you can actually do some other stuff that would be much more meaningful for the organization. You are going to be keepers, so they're not just someone in the shadows, right? So that's part sometimes of the motivation. And then, you know, they are eager to learn and, and they want to learn and they want to try and to get exposed, right? So I think it's also making sure that we're giving the right motivation to people to go through that, you have to have either documentation or self-experience to use the new tool in the system. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think I've ever heard anybody say, um, I want to spend more time on stuff. You know, I, I, I hear plenty of times, I want to spend more time on interesting stuff, 
but very rarely do I hear people say, I love doing the boring repeat work, you know, so, so, uh, but you, you're right, especially to uh, maybe people that are a little bit more set in their ways for lack of a, a better phrase. There is that, that fear element. That I think people just need to, to get past. There is a mind shift, a mindset shift that's, that's required there. Um, but chances are, and, and you probably see this as well is people go through a tech transformation, not because they're trying to save an hour a week or, you know, take half a day off their month and close. It's a lot more drastic than that because the team will be frazzled. You know, maybe they're working overtime and out of hours to meet deadlines. And then by the time one repeat activity is done, the next one's already come through the door and they're, they're always playing catch up. So I think coming back to what you're saying there about positioning, this is, you know, wouldn't it be nice if you didn't feel like you're always playing catch up? You know, wouldn't it be nice if you could actually finish at five o'clock and sit down and have dinner with your family? You know, do you see what I mean? And, and I think people yeah. often jump to the absolute max end of the scale that is I'm going to lose my job. Whereas in fact, the mindset needs to be actually, I work really hard. There's a load of stuff that I'm doing that just isn't producing any value. There's a load of stuff that I could be doing that's going to progress my career and allow me to establish a firmer footprint in the organization. Yeah, I'd love to do that. And I don't think anybody in an organization that you report to or anybody at a senior level is going to think, yeah, I don't want them working on the value add stuff. I'd rather them just do the repeat stuff. It just doesn't work like that, does it? Right. And, and you know, um, th that's true. And there is another way of looking at that. So, you know, um, a couple of years ago, I heard people in the EPM space uh, using the term, we give you the time back, right? Hmm. Um, and, and I was kind of a bit hesitating with that sort of a statement. I, I don't think that uh, EPM vendors or consultants are giving time back. We're not time lords. Hmm. Um, but I think, right? Um, but I, I think that what we actually do um we're giving you the ability to be more productive. Mm. And I think that over time, the organization expecting people to be more productive, right? So sometimes, you know, when I'm going to, let's call it the more conservative people in the space, and I'm offering them an advanced solution, I'm saying, hey, guys, you don't have to use an advanced solution. But the expectation of the management is for you to create at least six more insights um, to them, right? So mm -hmm. if you right now have a financial dashboard, they're expecting to see the financial dashboard with some procurement information, HR insights, sales pipeline, and analysis. If you do, if you can do that without the proper technology, be my guest. You can do that. That's fine. Then you don't. But but right, and then you know it's. But if you do want to be able and 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 meet those goals that the management set for you, you have to utilize that technology. So in many ways, I think a, a, a way to think about technology, it's not always giving us time back, but it helps us to be more productive. Mm -hmm. That's why, you know, when we started to get emails and all that kind of stuff, it didn't really help us to get home at five, but it helped us to be more, you know, responsive and, and, mm. and to do more. So I, I think that's a, a little bit of a different approach that you can literally help the people to be more productive. And unfortunately, as I mentioned, we, we don't owe time, but we can owe productivity. Hmm. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah, that's it. I'd love to be a time lord. 
Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why I was thinking that you would love that. But... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, but actually, you know, coming back to the times of value, because one of the points you mentioned there was some of these systems should be self-serve, which, which I wholeheartedly agree with. Yeah. Um, and what we were talking about there, obviously, was some of the, the heavier hitting platforms that there is a translation, especially if it's a big, it's not an encrypt, you know, it's a step change, right, to, to do that. But um, I have to give it a shout out because I do have an example of immediate time to value. And so, some of the podcast guests have mentioned it before, because um, I'll ask you the question a bit later, you know, about the, the, the tech and the gadgets that you use. But it's, it's something called Motion, and I'm not affiliated with them. Use Motion. And it's an AI calendar scheduling app. And, and it's so simple. Basically, you just drop in your tasks, tell it how long the tasks are going to last, how high a priority they are, and what your deadlines are, and then it just drops them all into your calendar. Because the theory is a task is one thing. Unless it's in your calendar, it's not going to get actioned. So it kind of bridges that gap. I saw a value in that. So my time to value for that was less than half a day. Wow. You, you see what I mean? You know, and that is a yeah. self-serve tool, you know, and, and that's not, you know, it's not anything to do with finance. It could be to do with finance because I, I hear they do, you know, a, a team version now whereby you could potentially, you know, do all of your little month end tasks to the team and it will use AI to schedule what needs to happen when. So that, that might be a use case for finance. But I thought I'd throw it in there because that's one of the systems that you probably wouldn't need to document because it's more of a productivity self-serve type thing. So yeah, we just need to be clear on what the threshold is. The only thing that I might say, if you're using some of these more self-service tools is at the very least document the, the landscape. Yeah, so how did they interact with each other? Yeah, so, so um, for planning, we use this. You know, this process is still done in Excel, but you know, it's not 20 Excel worksheets anymore. It's just one or two. Um, this is what we use for the operational stuff, and this is our BI tool, and this is how they all sync together. So I think that's a good exercise if you've not already documented it. Right, and and you know, it's um, on one hand, it's so basic, right? Like, hey, we need to document uh, where processes, how how processes are being done. Um, I, I was actually like 10, 15 years ago. I was I, I was working with a vendor that did like process management solution where you can literally do a write-up very easy, like, you know, like a visual style, yeah. but, but literally doing that to document processes and see how they work. Um, as much as it's basic, very few organizations that I met are really doing that. Mm. And at most cases where you really want to know how process is really working or, you know, what is the flow of data or some information, you eventually need to sit up with a couple of people that most of that information is in their head, right? Um, and um, even those who are documenting that, it's uh, very seldom that you will find the proper, easy to understand, updated documentation, right? So either it's going to be too lengthy or it's going to be not up to date or, or missing, right? So I, I definitely agree with you that documentation should be available should be done in a simple way that could be allowing to maintain it over time. Mm. And, and this is one of the use cases where it's easier to use AI. Because one of the issues I've still got with AI, you know, whether it's ChatGPT, Claude, Bard, whatever it happens to be, it's all multi-tenant, it's all in the cloud, and there's still concerns over data, right? So my recommendation is just use it without any sensitive data. But it doesn't take any effort now just to plug a, a question into ChatGPT to say, look, you know, um, give me a framework I can use for a process map 
Um, give me the questions that I need to ask the team, tell me how to structure it, and then it can at least give you that framework. It could then even go to the next step to give you at least the document layout. And then if you feel comfortable, because the systems you use isn't really sensitive, you know, chances are your organization is going to use something for finance, something for planning or whatever, you know, obviously not company data, but just in terms of systems, you could say, these are the systems that we use. This is roughly the way that we interact. Please provide a documentation with a little bit more detail that shows us. And then you can take that away. You can update it, share it with the team and make sure that it's precise. So I'm very, I'm seeing the production of base level documentation, at least going about that process is a lot quicker. So that should hopefully have, give people something to take away in terms of not thinking that they have to start from scratch with everything. You know, the tools are now available where you can template some stuff and at least have a starting point that's going to speed things up if you're at capacity already. <laughs> yeah. that, that, that's absolutely true. And, you know, I heard the interesting conversation between um, um, one of my colleague professors in the university and his students. He said that, hey, like when we're thinking about the AI, when um, when we started to use word processing or spreadsheets, right? Yeah. It wasn't allowed initially to be used in, in, in university for students, right? You still had to submit your work by handwriting. Mm -hmm. um, then, you know, the word processing came and email and so on, and you find, okay, like, you know, there is no reason to fight that. So it could be that what you mentioned with those templates, that's literally, you know, a next sort of a generation, you know, it will not fill up the process for you, but it can give you a better framework to start with. Yeah. Um, and, and probably needless to say, but I will say that, that it still requires a lot of, you know, human mind to validate what sort of template do you get? Are they comprehensive enough? So, you know, don't, don't just take the shortcuts of the AI without validating it. Oh yeah, 100%, because it, does, it doesn't know your business. You know, maybe yeah. one day it will. You know, and, and, and I am a believer that pretty soon we're going to start hiring AI in the same way that we do people, because there'll be specific AIs that are good at certain tasks, whether it's a virtual assistant or booking holidays or whatever it happens to be, and you can just pick and choose what you want to use. So there might be an AI that comes up that's a finance bot with a specialism in hospitality. Yeah, in which case, when you ask it a question, it already understands the context, right? But we're, we're still a, a way away. Latest chat GPT iteration does provide a bit of that context, so you can give it a bit of background on you so that you're not having to be as explicit when you, when you instruct it. But again, right. you know, coming back to what you said, you've just got to be careful on what sort of data you feed into it. But um, next iteration will be Microsoft Copilot, where they're building uh, chat GPT into Excel and Word. And I think that's going to be exactly the use case that we've spoken about there. You'll have, you know, you, clip, you remember Clippy and Word, you know, the little... Uh, paperclip that came up in the corner to, yeah. to guide you through stuff and 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 that sort of stuff the clippy 2.0 whereby you've got a little chat in the bottom that says oh looks like you're trying to write so and so would you like me to pre-populate a template for you and that sort of stuff so you're absolutely right the next generation you know my kids your kids they'll get used to it you know and it doesn't mean that they won't have a job it just means that they'll be focusing on more exciting stuff and that, that's my hope anyway yeah and and again i think it will be just more about that piece of productivity they will need to produce more because um it's not that they will be expected to work less hours a day i believe i think they will just be expected to produce more uh, during a working day and maybe do a more accurate uh, job right in that mm. sense yeah yeah so so going back for a second um so we talked about time to value and then we went off on a bit of an ai rabbit hole is is what normally happens in in these sessions um 
But going back to, I guess, business case and, and making sure that we're being mindful of costs, I guess, because, you know, we work in finance, we're trying to get to the point where we're business partners, and we're, you know, building value as opposed to just being, you know, bean counters and, and just thinking about how much we're spending all the time. But nevertheless, we do need to be mindful of costs, especially for larger applications that are going to be a considerable investment, right? So I want to come back to one of your publications. Um, and you're going to have to um, explain these acronyms, right? So we've got software project costing coupling CMMI and PMBOK into a generic costing framework. So can you break that down a bit for us and just give us the highlights and then I'll put the link to it in the show notes. Right. So so let's just, you know, start from one step before that. Go on. Um, if we want to understand if our company is profitable or not, knowing what's the revenue is usually fairly simple, mm -hmm. but understanding your cost structure is a little bit more complicated, right? Yes. Um, now, if we think about the manufacturing planet, right? Um, manufacturing planet, there are a bunch of ways. So, you know, if we're talking about uh, the manufacturing uh, revolution, right? Mm. That was already ages ago. So people over time have been able to understand um, how you can do a proper costing for a product. And if your planet has thousands of SKUs, mm -hmm. then, you know, there are different ways on how you can um, allocate cost and think about that for each and every SKU. When we're talking about projects, uh, software projects as an example, that becomes a little bit more complicated. Mm. Now, it becomes complicated because there are a lot of different uh, chefs in the kitchen. Um, yeah, because on, on one hand, you have those guys that, uh, you know, are the architects or software engineers and so on. They have their own way to think about costing, right? They say, well, I have a development team that is offshore, so it's a little bit less expensive than the nearshore one, right? And, and they are looking usually on that piece, but they forget that if it's a project that needs to get sold later on or a product, then there are some whatever um, sales and marketing costs to allocate into that, right? So those are a little bit outside of them. Um, that uh, CMMI, by the way, is one of methodologies that software engineers are usually use. It's the um, it, it it goes uh, side by side with CMMI for for different other areas. Mm. But the idea is that we have software engineers that know how to do costing in one way. Then we have the project management uh, officers, right? The the PMO project management office. Um, and, and there is PM Book with, you know, those methods of, of project management. And they have a different way about thinking on how you do project costing and how you might be doing like cost allocation and so on, right? So they're looking on that uh, mostly from, let's say, the milestone perspective and, and other ways. And at the other side, you, you get again those uh, uh, accounting and finance professional, the FP&A guys that, we, we used to work with them so much and, and they have a little bit of different perspective and needs when they do cost allocation. Um, now, when we speak about one product or one project, I, I don't think it's super sophisticated. It's definitely doable. But when you think about a company with a portfolio of, of products, mm. or if you think about uh, an implementation consulting firm that runs sometimes dozens or hundreds of projects in parallel, that way it becomes a little bit more complicated, right? Mm -hmm. That That is where you say, okay, so 
let's say that my offshore team is fully packed hmm. and I have only local resources. What does it mean? Does it mean that the next project I'm going to do is necessarily more expensive than the one I'm doing now just because my team is not available, right? Hmm. This is one question. Or if we do have um, a concept of a very strategic customer that we want to sell him a, a project and then we do a heavy discount on that project, what does it mean that this project is losing money and the other are earning money, right? Those are type of dilemmas that um, everyone who is getting deep into the profitability and costing analysis will be asking. Um, so overall, the idea in, in that research that I was doing was to say, okay, we do have several different frameworks. Each one of those frameworks is coming from a little bit of a different need, but what I try to do in my research is to think about that in a more holistic way and in a more business-oriented way that, okay, how do we take the good at each word, right? So as an example, the CMMI, if you think about software costing from an engineering perspective, um, if you're really following that, there are methods that allows you to do a very accurate calculations on how long and how many resources you will need to build the project. And then there are some methodologies in the cost accounting area that helps you in how to do a proper allocation. So if you merge the good of all words, you might, you might be getting a more holistic framework, right? So, so, so that was kind of that work of research. And again, it was coupling those different type of methodologies. Each one of them is a sort of a mini silo by itself. And you know, what we want to do is, is, is usually breaking those silos for the greater good. Okay. And from, so, uh, uh, apologies. So obviously we, we were looking at that from the perspective of uh, a company that produces software. So it, that's, that was my misunderstanding. So I apologize for that, but just thinking, um, thinking a little bit outside the box for, for people who are procuring software, are there any, I guess, methodologies or preferable delivery mechanisms that might be more cost-effective approaches? So, so you said there, um, some companies might offshore some of some of the work. And I, I've actually seen that recently whereby some solution vendors have said, right, well, you can have a UK-based consultant and it's going to cost you, you know, 70 grand, or you can have somebody in South Africa for 50. So do, does it pay to ask those questions, do you think, when you're negotiating a software contract to say, right, well, is there any way that we could you know, procure a more cost-effective resource if we're not bothered about having somebody on site with us? You know, is there any advantage to us, you know, um, ring fencing, you know, 10 days next month? Is there any way that we can have a negotiation around that? Because in terms of commitment and, you know, all of that sort of stuff. So it, it, do you think there's any wins from the other perspective, the people that are procuring the software that might help sort of negotiate contracts? I think it's an excellent question. Let me, before answering directly to that, take you know one step above. I think the whole question of cost structure is so interesting. Um, you know, where I've been working with hundreds of customers in the FP&A field, and I think that the majority of the projects is so focusing on the P&L hmm. mindset and not necessarily on the cost components or the drivers or how to look at those, right? So um, I think what you're asking is that, hey, if we get a little bit more sensitive to the cost structure mm. and the cost component, right, can we achieve any um, better 
maybe cost structure? And the answer is, of course, but you need to be really sensitive about that and you need to evaluate the different, uh, uh, you know, alternatives. But you definitely need to, to have that type of a framework where you can analyze them, right? Mm. And if you say, well, you know, maybe if I'm having an offshore resource, I would need to spend more on travel, right? So, so you have to make sure that you get that in, in your sort of evaluation mm. criteria or, well, I'm hiring someone in a different time zone. Is it really doable for me? Because if I need to interact with them, and, right? So, so I think that the, the, the whole idea is, is, again, it's not to focus just on the alternative cost. Well, uh, yeah, a local consultant will be more expensive than an offshore one, but, but what are the overheads, right? So, so the overall idea is, yeah, always try to get the big picture. Yeah, and, and you're dead right there. There are some areas where you can actually damage a relationship if you try and negotiate too hard as well. Because um, I find quite often that solutions are priced at a rate according to the value that they provide. Yeah, obviously, sometimes arguments happen if there is a misrepresentation of value, i.e. poor sales, salesperson, commission hungry salesperson, and, and so on and so forth. But what I also find is, and, and, I, and I've, had, I've had this before, actually, whereby companies might offer a dirt cheap day rate, for example, but then you just get given a junior consultant. You know, and, and and that means that, yeah, your day rate might be lower, but the project might be twice as long because they're not as experienced and it takes them twice as long to develop exactly the same system as somebody who's slightly more senior. So so I think we're aligned there in terms of thinking about just, just be careful. You know, if you do negotiate hard, just beware that there might be consequences in terms of the quality yeah. of the, the deliverability at the other end. <laughs> you know, my first experience with that was uh, in my first uh, home, I had a small garden and I um, I had to buy a mower. So I went to the store and I asked the guy there, I, I told him I need the cheapest one, right? Yeah. I, I was, uh, and the guy was looking at me and said, hmm, it looks like you were rich enough to save, right? So. <laughs> That's a great story, yeah, no, but very good, very good. So I'm conscious of your, your time there. And so, um, one of the questions, I was going to ask an AI question, um, but we've, we've kind of tackled the AI piece uh, a little bit, um, unless you've got any sort of final thoughts from the work that you've been doing recently. I mean, from, from my perspective, and I did a post about this recently is, um, I'm still not seeing a huge amount of people mention AI as top priority in their organization. So I've, I've spoken to quite a lot and it's just not been discussed, maybe because they think it's still too far off or they don't understand it or where, where it happens to be. But I guess from your experience and what you're doing now, you know, um, are you seeing people sort of becoming more focused in sort of an FP&A sense, I guess? Or, you know, what does the next iteration look like if more FP&A professionals started adopting AI? I don't know whether you've got any thoughts around that. So I think we need to check over the past decade, let's say, and, and see different hypes that we had, right? We had a huge uh, hype with big data. And, and I, I remember the claim over there, everyone is talking about big data, but no one is using it or mm. something like that, yeah. right? We're doing it. So, so you know, and, and I heard that, by the way, also over the past couple of years, people saying exactly the same about AI. Um, I believe that uh, on one hand, um, there is a, a sort of an evolution and revolution that is happening and we cannot ignore it. 
is it really happening right now? It's a little bit more hard to tell. I would be more hesitating to say, yes, that revolution is happening now. But um, I, I, I'm thinking about that, you know, um, when we just started to see the BI tools out there, right? Mm -hmm. Then many people said, hey, I don't need a dashboard. I'm okay with the reports I have. But once people are starting to get dashboards and starting to get used to that, they cannot do anything without it, right? I, I remember even myself, I used to build dashboards for myself just because it's so easy and nice to use. Mm. Um, I think with AI, it's the same, right? Once uh, executive, you know, are starting to use AI and, you know, one executive is seeing with his colleagues how nice, like he asked a system, what was my revenue growth over the past months? And he get an answer and a nice chart, then the other guy is, is starting. So I, I think... We will see that coming maybe more as a trend. I'm sure that executive will push more and more over FP&A departments, not to use just their mindset, but also to use uh, the engines. And I think that uh, the more traditional FP&A professional will have to start adopting that. We see those great AI tools coming up with Office and tools, right? So I, I see that adoption coming in and, and doing a change. Um, I, I don't think that it's mature enough that to say that it's happening now because most organization will tell you, hey, we have so many data issues to take care of first before the machine can analyze the data for us. But, you know, then AI will start taking care of some data cleansing and mm -hmm. some data interaction, right? So, so I think that that sort of evolution, revolution is happening. It will still going to take time until it's will fully adopted. And I'm absolutely sure that executive will start to push their teams to use that more and more because they, you know, I, I think modern executive never wants to stay behind and they will not be able to allow their organization not to utilize tools that are available here and now, right? Mm -hmm. There is no doubt that those tools are available. There is no doubt about the scope of their contribution. Yeah, and it's it's one of those scenarios where you know I, I agree. I think when people start using it, that there's just no going back. You know, and and fortunately, it's it's too late for me, right? I'm 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 fully fully in the AI bandwagon, and it's now you know part of who I am. <laughs> so so, yeah. um, but I always recommend you know the quick wins come first, right? You know, um, AI transcriptions for meeting notes. You know, it's so so easy now to have an auto transcript and the AI just pull out whatever the next actions were. And you don't have to think about noting down your next steps, you know, and it just is so much more fluid. From an FPNA perspective, I've done a couple of posts about it. As soon as you're using um, something like Notable, um, the ChatGPT plugin or ChatGPT code, code interpreter, even if it's just with dummy data, the speed that you can now Q&A the data to start producing visualizations, you know, and, and, and I think as soon as people start doing that more and more, there's going to be no option, as you say, for for you know, that wave to keep on getting bigger and bigger, right? To the point where there's there's no option. But I say that the biggest gap at the moment is still data. And I'm waiting to get to the point where organizations can easily build their their own private tenant with these AI tools in them. But at the moment we're still we're still a way off unless you've got some sort of heavy uh, IT experience in the team. So anyway, watch this space, we'll we'll see where we go. So no, that's that's been great. So I'll ask you the the, the question that I ask all of my guests. So the show is called Tech for Finance. I love my gadgets, my phone apps, my browser extensions. You know, I've mentioned one already. Use Use Motion, right? So, and it can be in your in your professional or your personal life. 
you know, you have an app on your phone, a gadget, software application that you literally just couldn't live without? So I, I have dozens. It's a very <laughs> tough question in my case. Um, and I'm always trying new ones. And I it's, I'm very rarely remove something uh, from my gadget list, whether that's a physical one or not. Yes. Um, I, I would refer into to right. So in, in my, let's say, in professional life within the organization, I will not give away on what I call productivity tools, yeah. uh, Monday.com style. Yeah. I think organizing so many tasks uh, with so many different functions at the organization, it's impossible to do in traditional ways. And you need to get something that you're thinking a little bit out of the box to consider tasks. So, you know, I, I definitely think that, you know, those type of productivity tool, I really like what you mentioned earlier about that tool with the scheduling. I will yep. probably check it out. So from organizational standpoint, for sure that from a personal perspective, the most uh, critical one, I, I have a sort of a way where I'm managing my calendar with uh, Calendly and the note-taking yeah. and making sure that all the knowledge about my meetings and insight and call to actions are all together. You know, I, I cannot live without that. So I think that's the personal kind of productivity versus the organizational productivity piece. And that's Calendly, yeah? Uh, it's it's the combination that I'm using with, you know, Calendly, note-taking and, and the calendar management. Yes, gotcha. it's, it's like all of them together allows my calendar and my time management to be superior. Yeah. Yeah. Very good. And you can, um, so motion as well, and I'll stop talking about motion soon, but I've, I've just started using it. Right. So I'm, I'm still in that giddy, um, this bright, shiny new territory. Um, but it's got a meeting booking link as well. Um, so, um, but what's cool is if it knows what your priorities are, um, when you send the meeting link through to give you availability, it will suggest better times than others. So, so in the meeting link, it will say, we've got this availability. These two slots are preferable if you can do them, but if not a push, we can do time number three, right? You know, and of course you're not gonna stop people from clicking three, but it's nice to have that, you know, this is preferred, this is not. So that, that's quite that's quite interesting. So yeah, check it out, it's, it's seven day free, seven day free trial. Um, you know, it's not it's not the cheapest of productivity apps, but in terms of, I mean, that they're, they're trying to say that it's literally going to free up a, a day a week. You know, I, I'm kind of seeing it at the moment, but what I'm finding actually is not that it's freeing up a day a week. It's just shunting all of the, the lower priority tasks that I hadn't scheduled <laughs> further forward. So, you know, it is what it is. So, so maybe, you know, some, something nice to mention. In my perspective, time is only a matter of priorities, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's all about like, how do you manage time? And, you know, for some of us in the knowledge space, time is the most, you know, expensive resource. So mm. if we get something that helps us to manage time better, probably can do better and, and enjoy better, you know, our professional and personal life. Yeah. You can make more money, but you can't make more time. As, That's as, right. as cheesy as the quote goes, it's a hundred percent true. And yeah. it's only when, as you know, with, with some pretty severe restrictions on your time, I'm sure it's only when you actually start mapping the amount of time that you spend on certain stuff that you appreciate just how valuable it is, because I'm now getting into the territory where I'm thinking of, actually, I can now see when I'm likely to finish something now that something's planning it for me. And, and so it's kind of a light bulb moment because I'm now realizing, right, well, actually, why would I ever do that? Because this is this is so much more important. This is going to move me so much more forwards than 
the sort of lower stuff that's just creating the noise. Do you see what I mean? But sometimes it's not until you see it in the calendar, in your time, that you actually appreciate how valuable or not it is. You know, and that's that's the last thing I'll say is that, you know, even if you don't use motion, I would proactively try and get your to-do list onto a time block in a calendar, even if you do it manually, because that's the only way that you're going to visualize just how much time you consume. And the other thing as well that I found as well is um, beginning to use, you know, the create task and then apply an estimated time to complete the task. Right. Over the past week, I have been drastically underestimating the amount of time that it takes to do stuff properly. So actually, when you think to yourself, oh, it'll only take me half an hour to do that, it's not going to take half an hour to do that. I'd say it's at least 50%, if not 100% more than the allocated time that you think it's going to take to do something. Right. That's usually why you will end up your working day, I don't know, at 9 p.m. rather than 5, right? It's usually those underestimation. And also from an organization or from more like a management or executive perspective, I think we have to remember that a lot of employees in, in the teams we're working with are not uh, experienced enough to manage their time, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it could be that they are great developers, great presenters, great uh, um, FP&A guys, but it doesn't mean that they have that sort of uh, time management capabilities. And then, you know, talking about those features, gadgets, AI, whatever, that, that those, you know, just have them to be better. Hmm. but you know i mean what we're talking about with these tools now is you know we've basically got virtual assistants in digital form right and 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 i i only see more of that and i will actively encourage all of those quick wins because you know this now also translates into my personal life because i've got a to-do list as long as my arm for stuff that i need to do as a family you know stuff with the house and all that sort of stuff and anything that i can do to make sure that i'm doing that you know, means that everybody's happy, right? And and that's yep. that's what, you know, I'm struggling less now, but that's what I've always struggled with is, you know, you you get so involved with what you're passionate about, your work and all of that sort of stuff. You kind of sometimes take your family as a given and I'm guilty of that, you know, and I feel horrible saying it, but it's amazing what happens when you literally stick to the deadlines that you give yourself to spending time with family. You know, the, the, yeah. you, there's just a lightness that comes from you being able to say wholeheartedly, this is my time for them, you know, so it's been yeah, really refreshing. It's a task by itself, right? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So anyway, Lurin, absolute pleasure. I really appreciate you coming on on, on the show. Um, where, where can people find more more about you? I think LinkedIn would be the easiest way, and I'm um, always super responsive and happy to get new connections and new conversations. So anyone with any question, ID, or motion, I'd be more than happy to get a ping from you in my LinkedIn. And um I'll chat with you. Yeah. Perfect. So I'll put your um, LinkedIn profile in the show notes as as well as um, I'll put links through to, to your publications as well. I know they're in your LinkedIn profile, but just so for, for easy access for, for other people. But no, once again, really appreciate you coming on. It's been a, an excellent conversation. Really enjoyed it. Thank you so much, Adam. It was a pleasure. Thank no you. No reason at all.